Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Element E Electrolytes. This month, we're switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP LMNT partners, including Carnivore Cast listeners. You can now receive this free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link, which is provided in the show notes or my Instagram link in bio. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash Cast, all one word. And as I said, I'll include the link in the show notes. LMNT electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. And get yours today to help support the show. Thank you. Dr. Kevin Stock is the founder of the Ultimate 90-Day Carnivore Challenge, Kevin Stock Radio, and the Meat Health Facebook group. He is also a major self-experimenter and former national-level physique competitor. Kevin and I previously spoke about carnivore for building muscle, dangers of plants, sleep and optimization, and carbs and protein on carnivore, talking about some of his experiments. He also shares his findings on his blog, which I read every single post on. Notes to self at kevinstock.io um, and in his Saturday 7 newsletter, which comes out every Saturday. You get a nice text message about it. He has some really interesting content. Um, his ultimate 90 day challenge uses the meat health method with strategies, step by step guides, and blueprints to help you shortcut to a body and health beyond what you thought was possible. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, Scott. It's good to talk again. Excited to catch up because I know you've had a lot of interesting stuff going on in your life as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, let's just start catching up. What have you been up to lately? What's new in the life of Kevin Stock? Well, I guess it depends what area you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> like health fitness wise, because I mean, there's a million things going on. But overall, like uh, everything's going great. I don't know about what's new. One thing that's relevant maybe to our conversation we're going to talk about if we're going to talk more about bodybuilding, because at least I want to catch up with with your latest bodybuilding yeah. stuff. Uh, I am now approximately one year into a carnivore bulk. Where I'm just eating three foods. And, and so it's, only, it's it'll be one year in about 10 days. Awesome. <laughs> so uh, I got another, I was going to do at least 18 month, months. So another six months of bulking before I'll probably do a, a, a cut after that. Cool. And what are the three foods? Uh, beef, eggs, and raw milk. And cool. so, yeah, and it's really, <laughs> it's really been just that. I mean, I get my beef from one of three farmers, local farmers. I get my eggs and my raw milk from the same lady. So, like, really, my food diversity is it's not a lot of foods, and they all come from the same place. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I've I've been feeling great minus the awesome. injuries I've had the last year, but. Like as far as energy, physical energy, mental energy, it's like the best I've been. So it's, I'd say overall awesome. been going going well. And how has the raw milk been for you? Like, did you notice any difference when you started introducing that? And how has it been long term? Raw milk's interesting because for those that don't know, like I, I started doing carnivore uh, six six some years ago, but I only started drinking milk I was in, as an experiment over this last year uh and mostly just because 
you know, other people were doing it. And I was like, you know, I am curious how I'd feel more or less. That's kind of the carbohydrate experiments I did a number of years ago. Similar reason. Like I was feeling good, but I was like, hey, other people are asking me how are carbs going to affect me if I've been only eating meat for X amount of time. I'm like, well, I can hypothesize, but I'd like to be able to speak from experience. So the raw milk has been, it, it made sense because I knew I wanted to do a bulk. It made sense because <laughs> it's an easier way to like kind of just get calories more or less uh, from a like a brute standpoint. Yeah. You have the lactose, so it'll be... I, I won't say a significant amount of carbs because it's really not, but more than zero. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but so I experimented with it, I'd say for the first time, it was sometime last year, over a year ago. Yeah, over a year ago. And I expected not to be able to do well with it because I'd never been a big milk drinker in my entire life, not just during the carnivore journey. Yeah. The only kind of milk I'd have had would have been like as an adolescent, skim milk and cereal um, and really the only dairy I, I, I had like hist- history would be like maybe some cheese. Um, not, I've just, I, I never consumed a lot of dairy. So I assumed like a lactose full fat milk was going to just destroy me. And yeah. I did, I feel totally fine with it. Digestion's great with it. I've had no issues with it whatsoever. Um, I wouldn't say I've noticed like any superpowers coming from incorporating it either. So, you know, both <laughs> sides of the coin. Uh, but it, it is easier to... Like if you're if you're trying to put on muscle and you know push calories up a little bit gradually over time, sometimes it's easier to go for a cup of milk than you know a few more ounces of beef that you just had a pound of beef. So it's yeah. a, a little bit of diversity here and there. I think is nice. Do you think um, your ability to tolerate dairy and raw milk uh, has anything to do with your ancestry, or do you think raw milk is just a lot more tolerated for most people than? I assume there is an ancestral component to it. You know, white European descent probably does better with milk than someone that doesn't have that in their ancestry. Uh, Like a lot of Asian descent just totally does not do well with dairy or or I should say lactose. So I think that's probably a component. I think the fact that it's raw is also plays a role in it. You know, so there's bacteria to help digest the lactose. Uh, so I think there's probably multifactorial, but uh, yeah, for sure, play, it probably helps a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how has your training changed, if at all? I know at one point you're using exclusively the X3 bar. Is that still mostly the case, mostly at home training? Or are you going back to the gym now? I would say the, big, the, the biggest thing that has changed would be, so, I mean, I was eating beef and eggs prior to this past year of both. Yeah. So the, the two biggest changes was adding in raw milk, which we talked about. It's been fine. Um, I want a caveat to say that I wouldn't necessarily recommend most people add in raw milk. Like, So I like to always have caveats. Like my things that I'm experimenting with should be probably understood in context. Uh, so not that I'm, I'm actually, I recommend most people do not consume much milk or dairy uh, based on their goals. So that context, but the, the biggest difference has been my workouts. So like you mentioned my gym that I went to shut down, you know, with the pandemic in 2020. So it was close. So I was doing home workouts, resistance bands, X3 workouts that I kind of just tailored a little bit to myself. And over two years of home workouts, I don't want to say I was not, the intensity wasn't there. So sometimes I felt like yeah. more or less going through the emotions. I, I would, I would uh, be listening to podcasts while I'm working out. So I'm like half just like not even in it. And so last August, I finally joined a new gym. I was holding off because the only gym remotely close to me is super expensive. And I'm like, (laughs) no way I can justify that because it's got, you know, this, 
the spas and all the XYZ, which I've, I've never even done. I've never done anything but the weight room there. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I'm paying all this other extra money for, you know, all these amenities that I don't use, but there's no other gym. So I, was, I bit the bullet and I've been going there. It's a beautiful gym. So I, and I just love getting back into like out of my house into a workout environment. Like the energy that just comes with that makes a big difference. Like other people working out, working hard, being in that environment, just like it pushes me at least. So that has been the major change. Uh, and so I would say that's, that's, that's been the major change. I, on the downside, the other major change is in February, uh, I slipped on ice and I tore meniscus <laughs> in my oh. knee. So my leg training, which it needed work, you know, and I was really working it up. It took a, took a big back seat the last few months, but I feel like I'm getting healed up. All right. So this is the last yeah. six months of the bulk. I'm really trying to, you know, nice. push out the, the, the few gains I can get. The <laughs> ends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that injuries are so mentally devastating so mentally devastating the physical pain is nothing the mental being like i can't train is like the worst yeah it's it's really tough i've had a handful of really debilitating injuries myself and it sucks recently Um, uh about a year ago i had a very intense back spasm where i wasn't able to walk um so that that was awful (laughs) was it lifting related um i think it was so I've always had a bad back. Um, and that sprung from eight years of competitive lightweight rowing, which is mm-hmm. a repetitive motion, an asymmetrical motion. Um, one doctor described it to me as like li- lifting pianos around corners. It's basically uh, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and it's like deadlifting basically, but continuously while you're fatigued and, um, you know, form obviously deteriorates. And, uh, I was also lightweight. So that involved like really crazy weight cuts. Like you hear from like wrestlers or MMA Mm -hmm. athletes. And, um, by the end of that, you know, I was taking a leave, um, naproxen every single day. Um, and so, yeah, my back was totally screwed up. You're definitely not supposed to take NSAIDs long-term. And so that screwed up my, I think my hormones and my gut health as well. Um, and since then, you know, my back has always been touch and go. It's kind of like, I can't do things like stand up paddle boarding or anything that really involves like much twisting at all. Um, and you know, I, I basically, I was in the gym and I tried to do, um, I was doing one legged leg press Mm -hmm. and I think I was just letting it's a relatively, it's a safe movement. If you're like very careful with keeping your pelvis, aligned but i let my pelvis rotate under load um and after i did it i was like "Mm, that doesn't feel right and then um my mother-in-law goes to an acupuncturist and i was like i'm gonna go to the acupuncturist i'll be like preemptive about this Mm -hmm. and one of the needles he stuck in hurt excruciatingly badly and then after seeing him my back was super tight and i was like okay you know, it's tight. That's okay. Sometimes it's tight. It'll die down. The next day we were actually set to move, um, from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And I got in an Uber and took it, took it to Brooklyn. And I tried to get up out of the Uber and I couldn't, I had to crawl on the sidewalk because my back had gone into complete spasm. So, um, I think it was definitely 
sent over the edge by the acupuncturist. Um, but the lifting definitely didn't help as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I've learned a lot in the last year about back spasms and how to get out of them and found a really fantastic, um, physical therapist actually, um, who I really, really like. I've had a lot of very bad experiences with physical Mm -hmm. therapy, but he's helped me tremendously. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's been basically the big injury. And then I tore, um, really strange injury. I tore one of the lateral muscles in my calf. So usually people tear the gastroc or sometimes they'll tear the anterior muscles. I tore one of the lateral ones squatting, which was really strange. Yeah. Squatting deep. Um, and so that was a pretty minor injury. I felt good like a week later, but, Hmm. um, or a few weeks later, but yeah, I've had, I've had some bad injuries. Yeah. The back, I have also have a finicky lower back and I tweaked it not not too long ago. I think it was this year or, or late last year. And it was interesting because it was kind of a similar experience to yours where it's like in the event, I was like, ah, it just didn't feel right. All right. And then yeah. it's like the next day or yeah. it was at least hours later yes, uh, where I'm like, it starts tightening up. And then I was in a similar boat. Like I, I, my walk in order to walk, it was very, uh, it looked ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I, so basically just for the listeners, what I learned in all my experiences with back injuries, the number one thing that helps the most is, um, getting your spine into a point of extension where it can also relax. So part of the problem is we are constantly in some state of spinal flexion. You know, when we're sitting, we're in spinal flexion, when we're um, sleeping, whatever we're doing, we're almost always in spinal flexion. And what needs to happen for a back spasm to unravel usually is it needs to get comfortable in spinal extension. So Mm -hmm. best way to do this is to lie on your stomach, go on your elbows. Don't try to push yourself up. Just go to a point where it's comfortable and just sit there. And like breathe, read a book, or on your scroll on your phone, and let your back just relax in extension. And if you do that like four or five times a day, it'll help a lot. Um, really? And that's that's that really really helps me whenever it's getting acting up or anything. Interesting. All right, that's yeah. Hopefully, I don't tweak my back. <laughs> yeah, but no, that that's basically the main thing he emphasized. The physical therapist emphasize with me in addition to like teaching me ways to stand up um, without using my back or get up from a chair without using my back because it was so, so tight at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that helped a lot. Are you squatting again now? Yeah, I squat. No, no, no issues. I, I mean, part of the problem I have is because my body structure, I have such a long torso and really short legs. My wife is like five foot four, I'm five foot 10 and our hips are the same height. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have really short legs and because of that, I can squat a lot. (laughs) Like I was just going to say, that is an, I have the exact opposite. I have a very short torso, very long femurs. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm I'm jealous of you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I have the opposite body type of what you would want for rowing. You have, you have a, the genetics for rowing. But um, because of that, I can squat a lot. So 
um, I'm always trying to find ways to use less weight, like slowing down, pausing in the hole, like all of these things to try to make um, squats harder because I, I can just get, the weight gets higher and higher and higher. And I'm, I'm really worried about some type of injury. Yeah. That's super interesting. So with your kind of biomechanics, you can probably stay very upright as well. Yes. Yes. When I'm squatting in order to even do it like halfway decent, it's almost yeah. like I'm deadlifting. Yeah. And I, yeah. It's like and a I'm good like, a, I need like a low bar. Yeah. I, it's, it's ridiculous. And so yeah. squat has never been like an exercise that yeah. I even go to because it's yeah. because of the biomechanics. Yeah, I remember you talking about how your friend runs like Squat University. Yeah, yeah, he, Aaron Horshig. And yeah, and he he tried to help you, and it was like it helped, but it was still like it's oh, still yeah. very much a challenge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I did um, for for where I'm at. I did that photo shoot in April, um, which was really fun. I was inspired by by you and your your photos. Man, um, you look great. Thank you, thank you. Um, and now I'm back. I'm not quite at my pre-photo shoot weight, but I'm like five pounds away from that. Um, I'm only like 12 pounds up from the actual photo shoot. And, you know, it's almost four months later. And I think I'll probably get like five or 10 pounds heavier than I did last time. Um, and then I'll maintain for a while and maybe do another photo shoot um, early next year. Maybe not. We'll see. I'll definitely do some form of a cut because um, so you, you cut uh, about what 20 some odd pounds then to get ready for the photo shoot. Yeah. Yeah. That's about right. Yeah. 20 pounds. Over um, how long? Um, I think it was like mid January to mid April. So about three months. Um, but it wasn't linear. Like when I started, Obviously, like the first week, I lost like five to 10 pounds, just water. And then um, for a while, I was consistently losing three pounds a week. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last two weeks, I basically stopped um, because it finally started like really affecting my gym performance. Um, and so I was I was basically trying to basically like three weeks out, I cut my weight loss in half. So I lost like a pound and a half that week. And then the last two weeks, I may have lost a pound. Um, and yeah, that, that worked out because there was just like, I remember like three weeks out, I, it had been like, you know, nine weeks of losing three pounds a week. And I went into the gym and it was a leg day. And I remember just like, nothing was happening, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know that feeling. And I was like, Ooh, this is, this is rough. I don't want to be here for the three more weeks and like you know I, to get to the goal i wanted to get to i was like i don't think i need to be losing this fast so that's when i added some food back and slowed it down yeah i, I listened to your podcast and i found it really interesting especially your rationale for doing a photo shoot and not a bodybuilding like competition because yeah. most people are like hey, i'm gonna train for a bodybuilding competition and then the photo shoot is just something that happens around yeah. it. but you're right it's different uh a different mentality because when you're doing the the bodybuilding stuff there's so much that goes into it from posing to tanning to all the prep day stuff. Like there's a lot of different factors yeah. that it's like, I could see the appeal of not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Al Alberto Nunez is this um, guy who's like a evidence-based bodybuilder. Who's like 40 years old. Now I really respect him. Like 
amazing natural bodybuilder. He's been doing this forever. And he's very wise. He says a lot of very wise things. And he put out like a three-minute YouTube video on why you should do a photo shoot, not compete. Um, and this was like halfway through my my prep for my photo shoot. And so I'd already made the decision, but it was like validating. Um, yeah. And he gave a lot of those reasons. Like you're never going to be really happy with the outcome from a competition or you're most likely going to be unhappy, especially if it's your first time getting lean. Um, you know, people are just going to be critiquing you. Um, you know, you're not going to get good photos out of it most likely. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff around it, like the tan, the posing, the show day, the travel, um, versus a photo shoot. You're going to get a ton of pictures. You're going to be super psyched about it. It's a really fun experience. Like for me, it was like, threw me back to when I got my wedding photos done with my wife. Um, and you know, I, I, I could only say that I was like proud and happy with what happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm really happy I did it that way. A lot of people along the way were like, you should compete or when are you, when are you competing? Um, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with that decision. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I think the one thing that a competition could do, but it's a photo shoot probably does it as well is if you're getting on stage and you are getting critiqued, on those days where, where like you describe, you got nothing in the gym. You're like, well, yeah. I better find something. Yeah, because, I better get there. <laughs> because this is happening. Yeah, no, for me, like I had paid the photographer. So that was, plus I'm yeah. just like, if I say I'm gonna, just like you, well, not even to the extent you are. But if I say I'm going to do something, I, I follow through on it. Um, but yeah, I could definitely see someone being like, eh, it's a photo shoot, whatever. Uh, I'm going to look lean either way. But yeah, with a show, you really don't want to show up and not be in the best shape. It was your photo shoot uh, because the guy that did it, I uh, his name is familiar. I've seen him. So did yeah. you guys like rent out a gym or is it was it open? Yeah, or how did you, his how did name you is James Marta, Jimmy Marta, Alpha Design Photos. Alpha Design, yeah. Um, he's done a lot of like famous bodybuilders like Nick mm-hmm. Walker. The, the AD, his yeah. AD design, yeah. I yeah. recognize. yeah. Yeah, and and a lot of his photo shoots look very similar because he yeah yeah he the same gym he he so what happened is um he he lit he lived he he's getting a new place now but he lived in like really far up in the Bronx so he drove up there and then he had a place like on the water or his balcony at least was over some body of water in his apartment and so he took some we started on the balcony and that was like really good light. Cause it was like overcast really good. And then we did that for like an hour and then, um, we drove to this gym. He takes all the photos at, which is a really cool gym with like all this prime fitness equipment, um, really cool bodybuilding gym that was like 30 minutes away. And then we did some photos there too. And then, and then went home. Um, but yeah, he was, he was awesome. Fantastic. And then he sent me, you know, a thousand raw photos on this USB. I still have it. <laughs> and yep. uh, I think he he touched up like 10 or 20 of them. Um, but yeah, he doesn't do much. He's not like Photoshopping, like giving you new muscles or yeah. something. He's, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> he's just like adjusting the shadows. Um, right. But yeah, no, he was, he was great. He, he's a really funny character. Like he, uh, he's a social worker. Um, he does this on the side. We went to his apartment. It was like filled with um, anime figurines and like posters from Marvel. 
And he's like, I don't like any of this stuff. I just resell it on eBay. <laughs> so he's like, hustler. Really? You you would like him. He like has all these different <laughs> side businesses. Um, and then he was like, Oh, I see you have a dog. Would you like me to make that dog into a service animal for you? I can do that. And so he like now our dog's a service animal. <laughs> Thanks really? to Jim. Yeah. So he's a funny guy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and so that's me. That's that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, yeah, I, I totally echo too what you said about like energy from going to the gym. I, I look back on my time training at home during COVID. It it was thankfully fairly short. We had like two sets of shutdowns in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the second one, I actually bought like a squat rack. Um, so that helped. I say squat rack, but you know, um, <laughs> But yeah, when I look back on like the leg training I was doing, I was definitely losing motivation. <laughs> um, yeah. It was hard to keep the same intensity, um, you know, being in the same place that you, you know, work all day or relax or whatever, um, especially in a one bedroom apartment. Um, so yeah, going to the gym can help a lot. I do get annoyed a lot of the time in the gym with like... <laughs> That's easy to do as well. Yeah. The number one thing that annoys me is like when someone has towels on two pieces of equipment and they're going back and forth, it's like, you can't take up two pieces, man. Like you got to pick one. (laughs) Um, And so anyway, there's a lot of stuff that annoys me about gyms, but overall, yes. Like it's very nice to get out of the house, have that energy. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think half of my, reason for doing like this really extended bulk is because two years of working out at home in my living room going through the motions even though i try to do more than that but and then being super busy so i'm probably under eating a little bit because i have no real goals yeah that i I think i actually lost some some muscle and i'm like you know what yeah i need to i need to i want to keep and put muscle on from where i'm at so i was like you know i need to because doing an 18 month bulk is something it's tougher for me to do because already now I'm like at a body fat percentage that I'm higher than I would normally want to be at, especially yeah. when it's hot, hot in the summer. Yeah. And then I know I got six more months and I'm like, so yeah. normally I would like after a year, I'd be like, oh, I need a cut, but yeah. you know, pushing body fat up higher than I'd probably like. But you know, I guess that's part of it. Yeah. I'm there too. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> My body when definitely you, likes being leaner. <laughs> when you did your competition, what was your height and weight? Uh, your 5'10", what was your weight? Um, I got down to about 200 pounds, um, at the end of the photo shoot. Oh, oh wow. That's, that's, that's substantial. <laughs> yeah. What is interesting. So Robert Sykes, I know he's prepping for, a, yeah a bodybuilding show right now. And so I'm yeah. following him along. Uh, and I haven't really, what I found was super interesting about Sykes was he's quite a bit shorter than me, I think. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm five eleven, but our numbers are very similar meaning like he wow. bulked up to like 185 pounds which is wow. like what i'm gonna bulk up to and yeah. his caloric targets i'm like that's exactly what my calories are gonna be at. wow and, and i'm just i was like is that just a coincidence a little bit yeah so i think he's shorter so he probably has a lot more muscle than yeah me. yeah <laughs> but uh but no i'm not gonna be anywhere around 200 pounds unfortunately yeah no i didn't get lean. anywhere near to like robert psych levels Sykes levels of leanness. I think that would be like sub 190 for me. But yeah. Um, you've been talking a lot in in your newsletters, and I saw you were on Ken Barry um talking about like meat mouth 
um, gingivitis and periodontal disease. Um, obviously, you're, you're a dentist by trade. Can you talk about um, like some of the new things you've learned there or, or things you enjoyed sharing with, with listeners and readers of your newsletter? Yeah, I'll say like over the last six, seven years or something like that, I, I've done a lot of writing. And a, a lot of my initial writing was, I was very much into this bodybuilding long before like carnivore. I'm talking like 12, 13 years old. And then throughout college, dental school, I, I, I'm doing physique competitions. And so that has been my writing initially when I'm starting to write about carnivore was two people that I I had already known me where I'm like, hey, I'm going to start eating meat for these reasons. And so I, it was nothing about like oral health or dentistry or anything like that. But then I started writing a little bit about like that stuff. And it just shocked me. People were really interested. And they're like, hey, I want to know more about like, dude, tell me more about our teeth and why we're all getting cavities or why is there malocclusion? And, but, and so I was like, it's interesting that people wanted to know about this stuff. So I was like, it dawned on me that <laughs> it seems so obvious perhaps, but like the mouth gives us many clues about a proper human diet. And so I've actually, the last couple of years, I've actually used that as like a lens to guide a lot of my writing. It's like, Hey, if we just look at the mouth, especially like, archaeology, anthropology uh, has a big influence. Like teeth are the most prevalent fossils we have and the only part of the digestive system that lasts in the fossil record. So we we can learn a lot about from about nutrition from our teeth uh, and our mouth in general. And so it's a lens as a dentist that uh, I have been exploring to be like, hey, look, our mouth tells us what we should be eating. And so meat mouth was a presentation I gave that it's like, this is what our teeth say we should eat. Uh, and so I gave some of the evidence, the clues hiding right under your nose about like what entails a proper human diet. And I talk about cavities. I talk about malocclusion. I talk about fatty tongue. Those are the three clues that I talk about in this presentation where it's like, if we look at these three things, they point us right in the direction of what we should be eating to have a healthy mouth. And unless you are the kind of person that thinks a diet that is bad for your mouth is good for like overall health, which to me, does not make any sense. Like that is a tough argument to make if someone's going to make that argument. Well, if we're going to eat a diet that's good for our mouth, I'm that's probably also good for general systemic health as well. So yeah, that's, I've been talking a lot about a lot more about that, and in in just another avenue because I mean I've been passionate about nutrition like for that like that's been my one my, the one consistency throughout my life, and uh, the dental angle is you know. The bodybuilding angle I like a lot. Like, what, what do we eat to have a good body composition, right? And you can have a lot of diets that can give deliver on that. There's some crucial things, like you need a certain amount of protein, right, et cetera, et cetera. But if we add body composition and we add, like, how do you avoid cavities? And we add, like, hey, well, why do we all have malocclusion and impactions? You put these things together. Uh, they point at a diet that is definitely a meat-based diet. Yeah, the the, fat, the fatty tongue thing is, is really fascinating. Can you talk about... What what is that phenomenon? And is that related to obstructive sleep disorders as Apnea. well? Yeah, absolutely. So that that is, so I call it fatty tongue. That is not uh, you know, like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh so non-alcoholic non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, they coined that in like the 80s. Like so before that, there's like you did this was it was a non-diagnosis. And now 25% of US adults have like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And fatty tongue to me is almost the same thing. And what I mean by that is fatty tongue is not 
I, I made that word up. <laughs> um, but I would estimate probably 25% of U.S. adults have, quote unquote, fatty tongue. And the reason I say that is because according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, over 25% of U.S. adults have sleep-disordered breathing. And that means our airway is getting obstructed when we're sleeping. And fatty tongue is a primary reason for that. And what fatty tongue is, is basically... If you're putting on excess fat, the body's trying to store it. Sometimes it stores it in your liver. Okay, that's not alcoholic fatty liver disease, but it also will store it in your tongue. And so I call that fatty tongue. And the thing that's really dangerous about fatty tongue is your our mouths are shrinking historically. And we can talk about that. That's a separate issue. But our mouths are a set size. And in fact, they're smaller than they have historically been. And our tongues are getting fatter and fatter. And the reason that's an issue is that our tongue basically has two escape routes if it's getting too big for its home. It can go forward like this, right? And then you have open mouth, posture, mouth breathing, all kinds of bad things there. The other place it can go is backwards, but that's where your airway is. And so that equals suffocation. And so fatty tongue is this thing that this, this, this term I coined to explain how obesity impacts negatively oral health, specifically this obstructive sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing. Obstructive sleep apnea is a sleep disordered breathing is basically on this spectrum. So snoring is a form of upper airway resistance syndrome where the airway is getting too narrow, right? It's not, air is not freely flowing. There's resistance. Uh, Obstructive sleep apnea is when there's a complete closure. Apnea means without breath. And there's something called hypopneas, which are Basically, not total apneas, but the breathing is so uh, restricted that the oxygen in your blood starts to decrease by more than 4%. So anyways, there's different degrees of severity of sleep disorder breathing, obstructive sleep apnea being the one that you get a sleep test, you get a diagnosis, and you get treatment therapy. And I treated, so when I graduated dental school, (laughs) I opened a practice exclusively dedicated to treating obstructive sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing. And so, you know, over the last 10 years, I've dealt with a lot of this, and it's one of the clues that dentists can see in the mouth. We can see a fatty tongue. That tongue is too big for its home. And if you have a tongue too big for its home, you can see it on many, in many ways. Like one, the tongue just looks really big. You'll see scallop markings on the side because the, uh, that's the teeth indentations on the side of the tongue because the tongue is like, it has no room. So so, so it'll get indent, indentations on the side of it. Yeah, and dentists have a front row seat to see that obesity in the mouth and the consequences of obstructive uh, of an obstructed airway. Like they have the front row seat to see that, uh, and I think it's super important both like to be aware of, but especially for dentists to be aware of because I would say most dentists probably are not. Yeah, super super interesting. And and we've chatted about sleep and and sleep breathing before. Actually, I, I meant to tell you I had a nasal procedure about a month ago. Um, to help with my breathing, and uh, so far it's it's going really well. I'm I'm very happy. What what'd you get? Um, so I have severe dust mite allergies. Um, like mm-hmm. there's blood tests they use to measure allergies, and anything above like 0.5 is considered you're allergic to it. Um, and then there's different levels. I have an over 50 mm-hmm. level, which is considered severe. Um, to mm-hmm. two different types of dust mites. And so my nose gets really clogged up just from living because everything has dust mites, curtains, 
uh, any mm-hmm. upholstered furniture. That's why we have, we have like faux leather couches instead, um, mattresses, uh, blankets, anything you own will get dust mites. You can't run away from them. It, it sucks. So um, I, I have obstruction from that and I'm on allergy shots, which help, but not completely. And then um, I've been seeing ENT doctors um, and a lot of them recommend, you know, getting a, a, a septoplasty, like fixing deviated septum. Um, mm-hmm. And another surgery they can do is, is removing bone from your turbinates, which are these structures inside the upper cavity of your nose. What I had done was something that's less invasive and often has similar results to the turbinate reduction, um, which is called a radio frequency of the interior turbinates, where they basically take a laser and they reduce the size of the turbinates. It lasts about two years. Um, It's an in-office procedure. You don't need to be sedated. They just numb your face, which is pretty intense. Um, But yeah, I had that done a month ago. I was really clogged up for like a week after, but now I'm I'm definitely clearer than pre-surgery, which is awesome. That's that's great. I mean, it's great to hear. You'll have to keep me informed on how it goes because yeah. I hear a lot of the, uh, I'll say the not success stories, like yeah. they grow back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so far so good. Um, like I definitely am having an easier time breathing um, at night. And and during the day, so yeah, happy for now. <laughs> we'll see. That, that's great. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask you about is uh, you you have your darkest before the dawn painting behind you, which is awesome. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know you're always sharing interesting views, and I, I think what's most interesting is in your newsletter you don't share a lot of your own perspectives on Bitcoin. You share like differing perspectives from different people and articles, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool because I've gone and like been followed a lot of these people or watched the videos you've shared. And like, I feel like I'm getting different perspectives. Um, but I guess, how have you seen the world of Bitcoin evolve over the last six to 12 months? And, and what do you think um, the future looks like? Uh, you know, not asking you to like, evaluate the the price of bitcoin over the next six months or whatever i'm just saying like how do you think the world of bitcoin is changing and its effect on the economy yeah absolutely so uh and i i kind of do that semi on purpose because i talk about nutrition kind of say from a place of authority as much as i would get that word but it's like hey this is a dentist i i do research i'm in it all day every day so I, i i have that but when it comes to bitcoin i i would say i'm more of like I listen to the podcast. I'm not on the podcast. You know, I'm listening to the, co- yeah, the yeah. podcast. Uh, and my my youngest brother, he's actually a professional. He's a professional fi- financial advisor. Uh, oh, cool. And I know what I don't know. <laughs> and, <laughs> or at least there, I know that, that it's a there, it's a very complicated world. So I try and I, I, I like to listen to people read, study this stuff as well. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to defer to these experts. I read this. Check this out. You know, like yeah. make your own opinions. But this, yeah. this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm finding interesting. Like you said, uh, I have to say, I mean, Bitcoin has been, I, I would say, probably gone through maybe the worst bear market in its history. And <laughs> for context, like I, I'm kind of like at this unique, weird personality where like I like to be on top of like new things. And so like I remember the first. 
uh, Bitcoin bubble, whatever, it was in 2013. And so that's when I got interested. I got a Bitcoin wallet. I'm like, what is this technology? I'm started <laughs> learning about it. Uh, and so by the time the next one in 2017, I was like already, I was sold by then. Like, I'm like, I think this has the potential to be like the game changing future of <laughs> at least asset. Yeah. Uh, and I would say like right now feels like maybe the, it sounds crazy because like it's been like t- yeah, 10 years since I've like been looking into this, Yeah, you know, magic internet coin. Uh, but right now seems like almost the best time to get into Bitcoin. Like the certainty of like, because like when I was in it, this is just some speculative magic internet money. But like yeah. right now they're talking about the biggest asset manager in the world, BlackRock, you know, filed an ETF. And the rel- so to me, the risk is quite low with the yeah. potential upside reward being like still asymmetrical. Like yeah. right now, I feel like we're probably sitting under 30,000 for a Bitcoin right now. Uh, it seems like the almost best ratio of lowest risk to highest reward that maybe, maybe ever. Uh, And that's easy to say, like I saw when it was at, you know, 3000, but it's as attractive, if not more attractive now at 30,000 and 3000, because at 3000, the risk is like, this is, this could very likely go to zero. Right. Yeah. So it's very speculative investment to go to zero where now I feel like that is not even possible. Yeah, there's so, so many major institutions um, and investment firms getting behind it. Like, I, I totally agree. Are even politicians now. Yeah. And so it's like countries. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah. it is, uh, yeah. And I think, you know, the having, the next having will be next April. Uh, I'm not going to try and predict what's going to happen, but yeah. with the previous halvings, we know what happens. Well, we know what happens with the having the supply yeah. gets cut, the issuance, the daily issuance gets cut in half. So if demand just remains constant and supply gets cut, yeah. like <laughs> pure economics uh, is upward trajectory. So yeah. I think I, I, I think we're going to have some surprise to the upside in the coming I won't say six months, but I would say in the coming 24 months, I think there's going to be a, yeah. uh, some Bitcoin fireworks. Yeah, I thought the one article you sent talking about how um, the having is coming up, but also the liquidity of Bitcoin has gone down. Um, so a lot of the people who hold Bitcoin aren't trading it. They're moving it into more stable long-term investments. So there's even less availability of liquid mm-hmm. Bitcoin, um, making the supply even smaller. Right. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Exactly. So the having is going to cut the supply. But yeah. the supply that is available is becoming less available because like what you yeah. said, people are putting it into quote unquote savings, which I yeah. think is the way people getting into it should look at it as yeah. like this Absolutely. is a speculative investment that I'm putting into savings. Yeah. And when that happens, people like you don't touch savings, right? So yeah. Yeah. I bought a lot of it at yeah. 3000 and then I basically invested slowly over like dollar cost average um, since then. Um, and Every time it goes way down, I invest a little bit more than normal. More. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's basically the way I've thought about it. Man, that's the way to go about it, uh, for sure. Um, and you had another interesting uh, tidbit in one of your newsletters about Apple stock and like how much it's increased despite the lack of a product release from 2018. Can you talk about that and like why yeah. you thought that was interesting? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I just saw that. There was like last week I saw this chart and it's not just Apple, but Apple's I, I think is a good example of since 2018, the market cap of Apple has increased 3X. So basically it went from under, it was more than 3X. It was under a trillion dollars, like $750 million yeah. as like the market cap of Apple. And now it's over 3 trillion. And you look at over the last five years and they've like, the iPhones that have been released have just been like incremental improvements, yeah. like an iPhone yeah. in 2019 versus whatever their latest one is. No huge There's improvements, but I think a lot of, a lot of times it's like this, basically it's the same thing. The camera's yeah. a little better, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that there hasn't been a lot of innovation releases, but the company is tri- more than tripled in yeah. size. And yeah. you're like, what? What is the what is the reason for this? I think there's a bunch of reasons for yeah. it. Um, but one of those reasons I think is like money debasement of money. So money, like it's it's the idea of just inflation. Like right, our money's becoming less valuable. So. Uh, the price yep. prices go up, yeah. Uh, and then part of it is I think people put money in Apple because I mean it's because of inflation. But they're like, hey, I know if I just keep this in cash, you're doomed, right? Because yeah. it's eaten away by inflation. Yeah. So you need to put it in somewhere. There is there's like no risk free rate of return. So you put it in Apple because yeah. you're like, as a big successful company, just hold the value of my money, please. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about Apple different from all the other big tech companies and tech in general hasn't really and probably won't recover to like the pre 2022 2021 levels um because people are no longer believing in the long-term value of these tech stocks to the t- at least not to the point of like 50 to 60 times revenue um which is right. ridiculous <laughs> um what's interesting about apple and I think part of the reason their valuation has gone up so much is they absolutely print cash. They have like multiples, multiples of more cash, um, free cash flow than any of the other large tech companies. Um, and to your point, like they haven't innovated that much, but they're just a cash machine. Like they're just churning out so much cash. So I think the market has gone away from these like inflated, you know, what's going to happen in the future, future looking valuations of tech. And they've been like, Apple, this is more like a regular company we can understand, but it's still tech. We can right, get behind. Exactly. And uh, I think there's also like the retail investor to your point. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really interesting case study. Yeah, I think it's a good example of that because like Warren Buffett owns a huge percentage, like the Berkshire Hathaway is heavy into Apple. But, yeah. but like he's a classic value investor, not a yep. tech investor. And so, I mean, that just goes to, to show your point. Yeah, yeah. He He's very famous for saying like, you know, invest in companies that an idiot could run because someday one will. <laughs> like, it's just like the only exactly, investing exactly. companies that can like print cash like Apple. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, on a related but different topic, uh, I think another part of your newsletters that I've really enjoyed lately is around like finding energy and motivation and purpose and meaning in life. Um, and you, you find these articles that go about it from a pretty practical perspective too. It's not like this grand theoretical thing. Um, can mm-hmm. you talk about like your interest in that and, um, you know, how you select articles for that or how you find them? 
Yeah, I think it's, I, I don't know if I'm unique here, it's a, if it's a common human experience, uh, or maybe we experience it at different levels. But like, for me, like being genuinely like happy all day long, is just doesn't come natural or easy for me. And it's like, I don't know if it's more like, there's people that they'll say are more like future oriented, you got all these goals, which you know, if you have a goal, it's like basically saying, I don't have this. And basically I'm not going to be happy until I get this. Uh, I think novel Ravikant said like that. It's like, so a desire is an agreement you have with yourself to be unhappy until you get some certain future outcome. Uh, and so I think in, in some respects, it's like, okay, I, I was trying like to think of things like, like a game a little bit. Cause to me, competition makes a lot of sense. It's like the point of playing a game is like, you want to win, but you're enjoying it while you're competing. Right. And so I try and think th- through things like that framework. So I think people that tend to be like goal oriented future kind of have these future, like, Hey, ambitious, ambitious is almost like a dirty word these days, but it's like, I feel like I have, like, I don't know where I cut it from. But there's so much I want to do uh, and create and, you know, and live uh, basically. Uh, that sometimes you feel like dissatisfied with where you are. And so I'm always like, Hey, how do we deal with this kind of, it's not cognitive dissonance, but like this, you know, it's, (laughs) it's like, you want to, how do you deal with this dissatisfaction without being dissatisfied? Right. Like, Hey, I want to do all these things, get to all these things, create all these things, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, that's where a lot of the stuff in newsletters, you know, stems from my own personal challenges, what I'm looking into, things like that. Uh, I do know there's like an, a, the flip side of that coin where there's some people that they dwell on the past so much. And I think that is more associated with like depressive symptoms, which, you know, fortunately I, I don't, <laughs> I don't dwell much in the past. Um, but I think there's, there's, I reckon from some of the things that, you know, I read like, Hey, if you're stuck in the past, you're going to feel depressed. If you're stuck in the future, you're going to feel um, anxious, dissatisfied, unhappy. You know, people tell you to live in the present. And then sometimes like, oh, you just live in the present. That's great, but it's not going to get me to where I want to go. So how do we rectify this? And to me, it's, uh, there's various ways, like every week, I'm kind of looking at that through different angles, more or less. Uh, we'll call it personal development. I don't really love that word, but, uh, you know, navigating challenges of life from uh, like a meaning purpose, like, why are we here? What are we doing? Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but that, that's where a lot of that, that concept comes from is just introspection. Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly relate to that. I think a lot of people can The uh, one that really stuck out to me was like the memory dividends. I thought that was a really interesting mm-hmm. concept. Do you want to give people a, a snippet of that? Yeah. The memory dividend, it's a good example of this where it's like the memory dividends is saying, Hey, if there's something you want to do, basically it says do it as soon as possible because if you do it now you have that enjoyable experience you get to relive it for the rest of your life yeah uh, and it'll pay dividends with diminishing returns as you go on whereas if yeah. you wait to the end of your life you do it well you might have that enjoyment but you can't get you're not gonna have to relive it as much yeah um, and then i you know i'm all, all like always try and play the devil's advocate because i always think these these piece of advice like this cut both ways where it's like <laughs> oh i want to do this now right so okay you're enjoying experiences now but there's opportunity cost to do something now that, okay, maybe you're, that's going to prevent you from getting to do something in the future that you would really yes. want to do. Um, yes. So there's, it cuts both ways. Uh, the difficulties of life, it seems like almost everything cuts both yeah. ways. Like all advice is like true and false at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah but I, I, the memory dividends, I like that concept a lot. Like, yeah, definitely. And, we'll keep paying I, off. 
I, I think a lot of people can relate to it. Like I, I know at least for the last few years, I haven't really traveled much. Um, got gotten a chance to go on many trips with my wife, um, especially internationally. And I do reminisce frequently, um, partly thanks to Apple and their ingenious little like memories thing that pops up. Right. But just, you know, naturally me and my wife will reminisce on some of the trips we've taken, some of the dates we've had, some of the experiences we had when we traveled more and before, you know, the last few years and in pre-pandemic world. And I'm really grateful that I got to have some of those experiences. Um, you know, I didn't like quit my job and dra- travel for 12 months. I didn't spend all my money and make myself broke. Um, but I still had some some memories in the bank that did pay dividends over this time period. Um, and, you know, then now I've had this, these few years where I haven't had a chance to do it as much. And it's inspiring me to do it more again. Like, I, I think it's a really, really cool concept. It, it is. And I like, I share things like that. It's funny because I know I need to do it. like, it's advice I send out that I need to give myself. Cause like, yeah. I haven't done, like, I think if someone looked at my life, they'd be like, you haven't done anything but like work in years. Uh, and when I say work, it's work that I generally want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why I like it. It's like, sometimes I feel like, uh, like to travel, that pulls me away from the stuff I want to do. Um, so I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me or anything like yeah. that. But yeah, that, but it's a lot of times I feel like the things I write about is advice I need to give to myself. Like I'm sharing this publicly, but this is the advice I'm giving to yeah. myself. Yeah, that's great. That's very um, humble and modest of you. <laughs> um, I think just probably true. <laughs> yeah, but no. Um, and, and it's funny, you talked about um, like what Bitcoin being one of the things that you um, listen to a lot about uh, but you don't like talk about for me, that's definitely artificial intelligence and uh, genetic oh. gene editing and like the future of gene editing. Those are the two topics I listen to a ton of content on. Do not consider myself an ex- expert on at all. But I just find it so fascinating. Interesting. So any anything that like uh, I should be aware of that I'm not like, for I, example, I listen to these Bitcoins. So I tell people yeah. I talk about Bitcoin because I think it's important. Yeah. I think. You know, I was probably early, so people have been calling me crazy for yeah. like 10 years now. But yeah. I think eventually it'll catch up with like, oh, all right, he's not yeah. such an idiot. <laughs> I, I'm not an expert, but there are very intelligent people who think like, you know, 15, 10, 15 years from now, like working out won't be a thing. You know, you'll really? just, yeah, you'll just be able to take a pill or edit your genes such that you you can get all the benefits without ever doing it. And I mean, I think there's also, it's very likely to happen in our lifetime where gene editing will be able to get rid of a lot of the signs of aging and we'll all just be able to walk around looking like, you know, 20 some year olds. <laughs> and like, I, I think I'd have to get a new hobby. I so yeah. I wouldn't be going to the gym anymore. That, that kind of makes yeah. me sad. That's one thing I yeah. totally look forward to every yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I think it's very likely that like, and, and the, the, things that'll be able to do for disease. Like, you know, my family rheumatoid arthritis is rampant. Um, and which means I would probably get some form of it later in my life. Hopefully I don't, but I think with gene editing, mm-hmm. like that will no longer be a thing by the time I would really have to worry about that. Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert. Don't take my word for it. Like go do your own research, but I think it's just really <laughs> fascinating how fast the field is advancing. And with 
artificial intelligence, it just compounds it um, where the advancements are going to come really quickly over the next 10 years. So I, I'm really excited. Uh, I think it could be really Is cool. there any one or two people in that in those fields that you particularly listen to? Lex Friedman, his podcast, and then he has a lot of great yeah. people on. Um, if people aren't familiar, he's a, a researcher, PhD at um, MIT. Um, and he he's been on Joe Rogan. He's had Joe Rogan on, uh, but he interviews a lot of the top minds in artificial intelligence. He's really good friends with Jordan Peterson um, and uh, Sam Harris and all those types of folks. So he's very smart. He's a very good interviewer too. Uh, he does a very good job with his guests. So yeah, I'd encourage people to check out him. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Kevin. Really a pleasure catching up with you. Um, like I said, I get so much Likewise. out of your newsletters. So I feel like I am keeping up with you in some sense. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's really nice to talk face to face. Where can folks find you and, and follow along with what you've been doing? Oh, and I want to give you a chance to talk about the ultimate 90 day car and war challenge. Can you tell folks what that is and where they can find out more about that? Sure. Well, first, thanks for checking out the newsletter. Uh, it started as something more like we were just talking about, like kind of it, it not like it did start as like something as an accountability, like, Hey, I'm going to share these things that I'm creating or thinking about or learning and notes to myself kinds of things. That's my blog was called notes to myself for yeah. forever. Cause like yeah. I was writing this stuff. Cause I was like, Hey, if anyone else wants to read it, that's fine. But this is really, I was going to do it for myself. Uh, uh, so that, so thanks for checking out the newsletter. I appreciate that. Uh, the ultimate 90 day carnivore challenge is basically just, I launched meat health Academy a couple of years ago, and it's a program that walks people through how to start a carnivore diet. And then there's a 90 day challenge in it. And then after the 90 day challenge, what do you do? Do you stick with carnivore? Do you transition? Do you add plants back in? How much, when, how often, which, you know, all the questions that there are like, what I love about the carnivore community is it can be as simple as, you know, you eat meat, you drink water. But for a lot of people, that's like, all right, that's not enough. There is so many questions. There's so many like, how do I, how do I do this? Do I eat organs? Do I have vitamin C? What about fiber? All like yeah. ad nauseum. There's so much to it. And so this is a program that I created a couple of years ago to answer all the questions. Like, how do you transition? How do you do the night? How do you do a carnivore diet? So you don't just die while you're trying to do it. And then how do you make it work for your life? And it was called Meat Health Academy with terribly branded uh, product uh, <laughs> because it was very unclear what it was. And it turned out like most people wanted to join the program because they wanted to do the carnivore diet. They wanted to, Hey, how, how do I do this 90 day carnivore challenge? So I just rebranded it, called it that. Um, and we added some bells and whistles to it. Meaning we now have an app where you're going to have a coach going to be with you the whole way through it. So we'll have you tracking some food. So a coach and myself can look in, guide you through the whole process. So that's the ultimate 90 day carnivore challenge, which is, uh, it's the old meat health Academy, just with a new name and some extra bells and whistles added on. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic resource. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's a great way for folks who want to get restarted or, or want to push for a certain goal or just want to learn a lot. I, I think it's probably the best place you can go, um, for that information. So thank you, Kevin. Um, and really appreciate your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on Scott. Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott My Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment, like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.